0: I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor in Chief. You're listening to EE Times on Air and this is your weekly briefing for the week ending August 14th. In this episode, now that everyone understands that making safe autonomous vehicles is a profoundly difficult thing to do, the comparatively easier option is to build technologies that will help humans become better drivers. The thing is, while driver assist might be comparatively easy, it is also turning out to be a much bigger challenge to do safely than anyone realized. We'll talk about that. Also, virtual reality, the technology and the art. The VR film, The Great Sea, was entered into competition at the 2020 Cannes XR Festival and emerged as the winner of the Positron Visionary Award. We have a conversation with two of the creators of The Great Sea. Here's a clip from the film.
1: This is the first time I understood what man once was. Our insatiable thirst for war.
0: The inevitability of our downfall. We'll get back to the Great Sea in virtual reality in a moment. With the quest to build truly safe autonomous vehicles pushed to the back burner, auto manufacturers are concentrating on equipping their vehicles with technologies designed to help humans drive more safely. These driver assist technologies are also known by the acronym ADAS. ADAS systems are already installed in a variety of makes and models from the last few years. One other acronym. During the upcoming discussion, you'll hear us refer to DMS. That stands for Driver Monitoring Systems, technology that monitors if a driver is alert or even awake. The AAA is technically a group of motor clubs. The clubs support services for their motorist members, but the AAA is much more than that. The organization also evaluates vehicle performance, and it recently evaluated the performance of ADAS systems. E.E. Times international editor Junko Yoshida wrote a story about what the AAA concluded. She quotes the organization saying that ADAS features lack consistency from one automaker to the next and that they are far from 100% reliable. The report noted that, quote, active driving assistance systems often disengage with little notice, almost instantly handing control back to the driver, unquote. That's not good at all. Junko wrote that a big part of the problem is that the agencies in the U.S. that have responsibility for automotive safety, they're failing to set ADAS performance standards, unlike their counterparts in Europe. The AAA's final assessment of ADAS technology in U.S. automobiles was harsh, quoting again, AAA recommends manufacturers increase the scope of testing for active driving assistance systems and limit their rollout until functionality is improved to provide a more consistent and safer driver experience. I called up Junko to get details about the problems with ADAS. It turns out that I had missed the significance of an important modifier.
1: Active ADAS is the one that actually stops a car. Or takes uh-huh. over your steering, that is really dangerous. So you should. Oh, put wait that... a second.
0: So let's back up here. Yeah. Tell me about the two. This is something that. Yeah. I didn't even realize there yeah. are two categories of ADAS. Yeah. Well, the advanced one are the ones active
1: one because you know they're, okay. they're, they're probably your car today. I don't know what car you drive, but you know blind spot warning or the uh, lane departure warning. Those are the warnings, right? They beep, beep, beep. I mean, it does give you this, <laughs> right? But, but there is advanced ADAS, which actually takes the control over your steering wheel. Oh no, you're going over the other lane. So I'm gonna drive it for you. That kind of things, oh. it, it intervenes. And that's okay. intervening wrongly. <laughs> so <Yeah.
0: laughs>
1: that's the real problem.
0: Wow. Okay. So they're saying that uh, most of the active ADAS. ADAS features that they saw and experienced with the four test cars or five test cars that they had yeah. failed a lot.
1: Yeah, it's right? it's it's kind of astounding, and, and the failure itself is kind of inter- well interesting, meaning that the lane keeping seems like a easiest thing I mean as a novice driver you learn to drive in the middle of the lane right Right. but this lane keeping feature of the ADAS sometimes you know becomes uncomfortably close to the car in the next lane why would you even do that or the guardrails in a lateral direction or the the failure to engage. Yeah. A lot of things apparently have gone wrong and each car has a different performance. And that right. that was very confusing, but yeah, it failed a lot. And also to add to that, you know, this is a real driving experience, but when mm. you did the test circuit, you know, in the, in the closer test course. The, test course, they put this, what they call the soft test vehicle. When I first read that, I said, what is the soft test vehicle? And I went to yeah, the a uh, nurse car the yeah. so <laughs> like nurse <laughs> I went to the whole PDF and read the page and page after page and there's a picture. And it looks like a big garbage bag white, but it, it has a shape of a, <laughs> shape of a hatchback car. Ah, that's a test soft test vehicle. And when you when the soft test test vehicle at the side of the road, apparently your ADUS gets confused can I get there or can I run over? I mean, they just don't recognize as a car. Not that wow. this vehicle is made badly, it's just that it's in the way so that uh, the sensors don't have enough confidence that it is a drivable space or not.
0: So basically what I'm hearing is yeah. is that there are, the warning ADAS yeah. is doing okay, but, but the Activatus is, is. is something that uh, you you think you should be able to rely on. Yeah. Um, but you shouldn't but because it, you it, are it change, in charge. Yeah, but who's in charge? And your story, you mentioned that uh, some of the vehicles, they would either take control yeah. or relinquish control back to the Human driver right. so abruptly yeah. that the human driver couldn't even react. Right.
1: Yeah. That uh, the handover machine to human handover that mm-hmm. is going to dog this whole uh, activators, and that was a point that uh, one of our friends, Colin Bonden of Semicast Research, was talking about. When I asked him about this, he said, "You know, his thing is that." If you think about this active ADAS features, if drivers is indeed paying attention and this active uh, features is uh, working, it is really annoying, right? It's to no. the point that it's just too active. I mean, it's like it is too active when the driver is alert. And, uh, you know, you'd rather actually, you know, you'd rather drive yourself. But ADAS gets too passive in a split second emergency situation because uh, you know when when you are when the driver is distracted or driver is uh, getting dozy or impaired you know drivers can't help the car but the the, right. the last defense car OEMs have and car OEMs always win which really bothers me is that it is always you the human driver's fault because we told you so this car is designed to be assisting you're driving. I'm not replacing you. That's their defense,
0: right? And you know that that's not what their marketing people are no. going to be <laughs> no, telling people. I know,
1: I know because they're going to tell you that I'm going to help you drive safely. But you right. you're trusting that you're you're okay. This is great. You know they're going to help me. But the human nature is that you get used to it. You know, oh wow, this this does this, this does that. Oh, I don't have to worry about it. Right? That's right. the human nature. So how do you combat that the, the Collins thing was that it bothered him when AAA report did not even mention either human factor or that the uh, the fact that driver monitoring system could might be able to help the situation if, because because money DMS is actually constantly watching the driver the the car knows when they can hand this over or, you know, how impaired are you, right? I mean, the car knows what needs to be done.
0: Well, isn't that Collins' thing that there is driver monitoring in the car? Yeah. But the driver monitoring system isn't sophisticated enough yet to tell when the driver is really actually drowsy or whether they're just distracted it, for a moment or...
1: Well, the, the, hang on. It's, it's, it's getting better. And the truth of the matter is that... In the United States, DMS Mm. is not a requirement yet. But I think if you are pitching ADAS, especially Mm. active ADAS, DMS and ADAS needs to go hand in hand. While in Europe, Euro NCAP is already mandating uh, DMS to be in every car if you are shooting for five-star rating in a couple of years.
0: And this would presumably help with what we were talking about earlier. Right. Say the car has taken over control of driving for a second yeah. and it's going to hand it back. Yeah. It can detect whether the, the human driver actually paying is attention alert or enough to, like, take control, or, right? Right, right. Yeah. 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 And so it makes sense that one is a prerequisite yeah, yeah. for the other. Yeah. So, but only in Europe, not in the United States.
1: Well, yeah, we don't like so, we don't we, we don't like regulations in America. <laughs> it's like yeah, uh, you right. know, the, people are insisting the freedom not to wear masks, you know, that sort uh, of thing. Uh, freedom not to have DMS. It's
0: stupid. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't even want to get into the mask thing. Yeah. Um, so, jeez, <laughs> <laughs> no. with the driving though. Yeah. I mean. I, sh- Shouldn't there be some stricter standards about an in, in agreement on what the various features in ADAS are, how they're supposed to perform, some minimum safety levels that OEMs ought to be shooting for, the type of stuff that presumably is being developed in Europe, but not here? Yeah, we exactly. Have some of that? That,
1: that was exactly my question. And um, this uh, consumer advocacy group based in Washington, it's called the Center for Auto Safety, I think. Uh, They actually Mm -hmm. discovered that uh, NHTSA, the agency uh, under the uh, DOT, Department of Transportation, NHTSA apparently gives 98% of all new cars coming to the market, either four or five stars so well, that's that ridiculous. It, it's, yeah, it's that's like, like, every, that's, you, that's you, like you Yelp
0: reviews. <laughs> yeah,
1: you pass every time, really, pretty right. much. So there's really no rigorous testing protocols or standards that you need to meet. You know, they're just about getting around how to call ADA. So I guess that's a one step up. But I think they really need to shoot for what level of performance the car industry should offer when they provide this certain activators. And, and this this really needs to be spelled out, because for one, as a driver, I would be very confused if I was, uh, you know, if I'm driving the Subaru, and next day I'm driving Toyota, I may have a whole different experience. And that is mm-hmm. unacceptable.
0: Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, uh, you were talking about how Americans tend to resist having standards imposed. And that's absolutely true. Part of that, you know, some of the people i I've been talking to – I had a couple people tell me, well, it's okay if different automakers have different ADAS performance because then the automakers will be able to compete on safety. Oh, come on.
1: That is is the the, last – I'm like, "Ah, I don't
0: want automakers competing on safety.
1: I want them all to be safe. Yeah, they're playing with our lives. Right. I mean, in the name of saving life, saving people's lives, they're playing with our lives. And that's that's not kosher.
0: No, no. So I I don't know. I mean, I just uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think I I want some some minimum performance standards. I want I want my vehicle to have a minimum level of safety. Right.
1: And I don't I want to know what what that is. Because otherwise, I don't have confidence that what car expects me to do at when and what I can expect the car to do 100% right all the time.
0: Do we have any expectations? So we we've been talking about autonomous vehicles for the longest time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they promised us jetpacks. They promised us autonomous vehicles. They'd be here on the road 2 years ago and uh like by 2020 we'd all be driving AVs and no. No. <laughs> That's I think off. it was That's off years. But anyway, yes. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any expectation that a similar thing might happen with active ATIS?
1: No, these active ATIS, are, are they're actually already available. That's the problem. Right. These uh-huh. are the cars that AAA actually bought these cars uh, off dealers. So right. they are already available.
0: So when they say, let's put a break on yeah. what we have and what we're doing until we can figure out...
1: Well, the, the you know, well, what
0: we're doing what we're doing with what we've got and where we should be going with it. Well, them, right? after
1: all because you're responsible. Car makers yeah. get scot free. That's today's lesson. <laughs> Car makers always win and that's a problem because they don't have to be responsible. This whole thing will change though if it becomes well, totally autonomous vehicle.
0: Or until the insurance agency lawyers figure it out, right?
1: Yeah. Well, that's yeah. another story.
0: I'm uh, looking right. forward to have that conversation,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> Junko, thank All you. All
0: right, thank you. Junko's story on the AAA and ADAS is on the EE Times website. It's called Lack of ADAS Benchmarks is Haunting the Car Industry. We've got a handy link on the webpage dedicated to this podcast. You can find that at www.eetimes.com slash podcast. Every two years, E.E. E. Times and our sister publication, EDN, sponsor a poll called The Mind of the Engineer. The Mind of the Engineer not only provides insight into what engineers think about their jobs and careers, but also provides a remarkably thorough snapshot of the electronics industry through the eyes of the people who literally make the industry work. This year, we're also presenting a webinar to discuss the results, and this is is your invitation to listen in. The webinar will be hosted by Jim Warwick of Beacon Technology Partners, who managed this year's poll. The webinar will be held on Thursday, August 20th, at noon Eastern or three o'clock Pacific. Registration is free, and attendees will get free copies of the research right afterward. EE Times and EDN won't be making the data otherwise available until early September. Here's a sampler of some of the data gleaned in our mind of the engineer poll. Engineers are working harder than ever before on more and more complex projects. Outsourcing is a common solution to labor shortages and time constraints. That's especially for software development, mechanical design, or test certification. Engineers are unlikely to go back to their offices regularly after the COVID-19 lockdown. It appears having alternative work locations is going to be the new normal. The Mind of the Engineer webinar will provide details about all of that and much more. How to register for the webinar? The URL is pretty complicated, so we're going to recommend that you visit this podcast episode's webpage, where we have a handy link. Find this episode at wwwe eetimes.com slash podcast. Virtual reality has been around for decades, but even after all this time, it remains an exciting new frontier. The technology is still evolving, and the people who create VR content are still exploring the boundaries of what virtual reality could be. I remember going to conferences 25 years ago, or more, and putting on what by today's standards would be considered an enormous helmet with built-in display screens, and then being dropped into a wireframe 3D space, and almost immediately getting woozy. Over the years, the experience kept gradually improving. The industry figured out ways to display VR that minimized motion sickness, The helmets evolved into lighter weight goggles and the quality of the VR imagery got much, much better. Perhaps about 10 years ago, I was treated to a truly glorious VR experience shot and displayed in HD. I found myself in the midst of a menagerie of animals visiting a waterhole in Africa. Then there was an unexpectedly abrupt cut to a view of Manhattan from a few thousand feet up. Suddenly finding myself in midair nearly gave me a heart attack. No thanks to whoever thought that was a clever transition. Just a couple of years ago at another conference, I donned some goggles and dropped into a first-person shooter in a pretty detailed facsimile of an Old West saloon. Compared to shooters on game consoles like the PS4 and Xbox, it was a much richer experience because of the sense of immersion that just naturally accompanies being in a 3D environment. I remain fascinated by VR. A couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to talk to a couple of VR content developers from a company called Secret Location, which is located in Toronto. Secret Location not only does VR games and VR storytelling, but it also has developed a cloud-based VR content management system. The studio's VR film called The Great Sea just won the Positron Visionary Award at the 2020 Khan XR Festival held in June. The Great Sea, that's the letter C, is based on a story by Philip K. Dick, a legendary science fiction author whose novel The Man in the High Castle was the basis for the Amazon TV series of the same name, and whose short story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?, was famously a jumping-off point for the creators of the film Blade Runner. The Great Sea is entirely animated. It takes place after a devastating disaster nearly wipes out humanity. Each year, One person among those left alive is selected to meet with the powerful computer that runs what's left of the world. That's the Great Sea. The meetings always end up very badly for the humans involved. Here's a clip from the film. The Great Sea teaches us Be
1: humble Live simply Deny Our dark impulses. Lest we return to chaos.
0: Luke Van Osh is a producer at Secret Location. He's got a background rooted in both film and game design. Steve Miller is a motionographer at the company. Both worked on The Great Sea. I started out asking if they were using technology that was new to create the film.
2: Uh, I wouldn't say it was like necessarily new. Historically, when we got started making um, content in VR, we did a number of projects where uh, we filmed and at the point in time that we were doing that, uh, a lot of the camera rigs were essentially just like an array of GoPros pointing in a circle to basically capture 360-degree video. Um, And that has its own set of challenges uh, when you're talking about, like, keeping VR hardware charged. Like, try getting, you know, 16 GoPros not to cut out during a shot. It can be a a world of pain doing that. So we've done a number of projects like that. And for this, because it was something so fantastical, so cree something so fantastical and doing unique things, we really wanted to work in a medium where we could be more, I guess, creative and expressive. And so, like, moving into animation was good for that. And in particular, we jumped into using game engines, uh, particularly the Unreal Engine, which I believe this was the first time our studio had actually made use of Unreal Engine. Uh, And they're actually have been getting some uh, coverage lately because of their use in uh, The Mandalorian for doing real-time production. So they're particularly well-suited for doing this type of thing. And yeah, especially in VR, where you wanna have that level of dynamism where when it's rendering in a game engine, if you wanna change your perspective, you can. If you wanted to add in interactive elements, you could. So yeah, this was our first project really diving into, I'd say, that component. Steve, do you want to talk
3: a little bit about comparing some of the drawbacks that we found with 360 Video? And again, like kind of comparing it to real-time animation and why we liked it, like the stuff with the stitching in 360 Video. Yeah, just kind of all that stuff that was sort of immersion-breaking.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess that is true, especially once you get past the idea of just filming this stuff, combining it together into uh, a continuous image can be pretty challenging. Like you said, there's stitching, and obviously since they're individual camera lenses, you're basically having to deal with a little bit of like image offset, which introduces this little bit of parallax, basically. So, especially if anything is coming close to the camera, which is kind of what you want when you're dealing with like 3D movies or that type of thing, having that sense of like, oh, there's something right in front of you. Well, if they happen to be standing like right in between where two cameras sort of are capturing data, they'll like basically waver with a little bit of parallax and it can be a little bit painful and uncomfortable. So obviously once you move into a real-time engine, everything is being rendered on demand. So you just don't have to worry about that. Like you get perfect pristine frames being rendered for wherever your eye is looking.
0: Interesting, interesting. So just out of curiosity, I mean, I don't know, so this might be a dumb question, but is a, um, a rig with 300, you know, 360 views with a GoPro, is that just something you guys jerry-rigged and to see if it worked or is that common practice?
2: Uh, well, when we got started and I think it was like, was it 2013 or 2014? So it was like basically when the Oculus had their like developer kit out. So they didn't even have a product on the market yet. Um, Some people in the office had it. They brought it in and we started playing around with this. And yeah, it was very much like just sticking duct tape and GoPros together. I think you could buy some stuff online, but they were like debatable quality, you know, getting off of like random sites like an Alibaba type thing that, you know, maybe kind of sort of works. But um, yeah, you had to figure out a lot on your own. And pretty much for the time that we were doing that, I would say... They consolidated around some more better engineered rigs, but they were still based on the same fundamental principle. I think it was always some version of a GoPro, basically.
3: Yeah, we we made a number of projects, our first projects in VR that dealt with video. We 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 started doing real-time like game engine VR projects and video 360 degree video-based projects at around the same time. And we kind of worked on them in parallel. And sometimes we kind of mixed them together where we had some video content in real-time environment. Um, and then we moved away from video and started doing just basically all game engine, real-time stuff. But back when we were doing the video content, um, it was like 3D printed rigs that you basically snap the GoPros into. Uh, and as, as Steve was saying, just around the time you started to get the all-in-one ones is when we actually stopped working in that medium 360 degree video and honestly I I haven't been paying that much attention to it lately so I don't know what the state of it is yet I haven't noticed anything yet that it seems like a real breakthrough from the time we were working in it but I know like there were some big initiatives like trying to address the stitching issue like I know Google was working on something and trying to crunch all the data and make this stitching seamless um, I know some companies were working on trying to do volumetric video capture um, so that you could have the sort of six degrees of freedom within a video experience. You could look around objects in a video experience. But honestly, I uh, since we haven't been working on it for a number of years now, I actually don't know what the state of all that is at.
2: I think it was hmm. Litro. They had been working on a light field-based solution, but it was like... It sounded like it was a pretty big beast. I think uh, some people from our office got a chance to check it out at at a point. And yeah, it was just a, a big deal. I don't know whether they're still pursuing that or if they've pivoted away, but it seemed like it was a uh, uh, it's its own challenges to work with.
3: I think the the data it was recording was outrageous. It was like terabytes a minute or something <laughs> like that, or even even more than that. It was yeah, it was crazy how much it was. I think that was a big
0: <laughs> big challenge it's got to be kind of fun, challenging, but fun, contributing to actually developing the tools you use to create the content, whether it's um, a linear story or a game that you can play within, right?
2: Yeah. It felt like the Wild West for the for the first period of time. But then it's like, it does have that feeling of you're the first person to be doing this type of thing. And that's really exciting. So even though there's a bunch of unknowns, when you do figure something out, you get that little bit of an adrenaline rush like, hey, I might be the first person who's ever like looked (laughs) at this and said, yeah, this is working.
0: (laughs) So let's talk about creating content in VR. Um, I mean, just as there are new technologies, I imagine there are new techniques that affect what you can do with storytelling. I think for the simple basic thing, I would imagine, is just the level of immersion, uh, the difference between seeing a flat screen and then maybe being in an IMAX theater or you know planetarium, and then actually being in VR, that's got to be just upping the ante each time.
3: There is a lot of considerations between moving from what works on a 2D screen to what works in virtual reality. Um, and I think we were in a fortunate spot in that, relatively speaking, we we did have a, a decent amount of VR experience before we made. We never made an animated film in VR like The Great Sea before. We did have a relatively good amount of just working in VR uh, experience before that. And Steve and I certainly spent a ton of time just theorizing, well, this works on a flat screen. Will it work on you know, uh, in in virtual reality. And that was kind of our goal, though, right from the start of the project was, let's see how we can make something, can we make something that feels, feels like a film in VR? Like, we're going to borrow some techniques, but we're going to modify a bunch of techniques as well. We're going to start with the film language, but we're going to have to, like, adapt it to VR. But, but what we wanted to do is, you know, it's very vague, but we wanted, like, when you came out of it, we're like, oh, that felt like a film. It's in a new medium, but it it, it had the sort of pacing. It had the excitement. It had, like, the kind of kinetic energy of camera movements and, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of our mission. And, and there was just, like, a, a, a ton of learning that, that went into
0: well, it. Well, that's really fascinating. That's that's really kind of what, one of the things I wanted to get at. With classic film storytelling, I mean, you do have a language, right? Um, you know, and it goes back to whether it's, you know, D.W. Griffiths or, or whomever. There's a way to speak in film. And when you've got a flat screen, that's where people's attention is. VR is a little bit interesting because if you're in it, you could turn your head 180 degrees and miss what the filmmaker wants you to see. I noticed in The Great Sea, you chose to have the viewer the person who has the point of view sit in a chair that immediately kind of limits the viewer's ability to have their attention wander to places you don't want it to be i imagine that was a conscious choice yeah 100 percent.
3: now you're getting to this stuff that we've we've spent a couple of years now talking about and this is like kind of like definitely the, the heart of it steve i know you we've been thinking about this for a ton and you've been thinking about this for a ton so
2: what's your take on it there are certain things that do work, certain things that don't work. You go in with some assumptions. Uh, you have some of them challenged. Some of them evolve. Um, yeah, in terms of this whole seated experience, uh, that was definitely by design. We made it so that pretty much that like you know 90-degree field of view directly in front of where you are in sort of your neutral seated position does represent basically a traditional film in in a certain respect and then you basically just have that film surround you and immerse you just so that you don't see the edges of the screen so you can choose to look around and obviously if action you know evolves on the screen you always know where you can like turn back and have sort of that common reference point to resume things we'd actually played around with like probably a number of little techniques one thing that really helps is we did unlock our camera movement a little bit, which allowed us to move the camera around the scene. That, for the longest time, had been in VR. It's like, oh, it's a no-no. Definitely when you're seated, you're a little bit safer. You're not gonna get like vertigo and fall over quite as easily. And by doing simple things like just subtly pushing the camera towards or away from the axis of where the action is, people tend to, that just draws your eye. It's almost like compositional framing that you do in two D that just helps draw your eye towards uh, the main action of a scene. So we were playing around with things like that. Um, yeah, we would do sound. things.
3: Yeah, we use sound a lot. Yeah, as, as yeah. yeah, we use sound like uh, in in real time uh, experiences. Uh, you can do it in in pre rendered experiences as well, but definitely in real time environments, You you know you have the three hundred sixty degree 3d environment that you're in but you can also do the same with sound so you have spatialized sound so what's really great about the headsets is you can you know make the listener can be like oh that sounds distinctly over behind me and so far away or right behind me or right to my left right to my right and we use that a lot too as sort of a subtle way of kind of leading the the uh viewer's attention the the interesting thing i think uh the great sea was you know generally quite well received but i think one of the most controversial things about it what uh, in the in the feedback of it was sort of this issue of like how to introduce lots lots of editing lots of cuts and camera movement and stuff like that to bring up the pace and compress time uh which which we did but people in VR still want to look around and kind of explore it at their own pace. And I think the people that didn't enjoy it found a lot of friction there. We were very, very intentionally and very heavily trying to lead the viewer. And we were like, don't look, you know, sit down and watch what we want you to watch. Like, you, you know, sure, you can look behind you, but we, we're not doing anything interesting there, right? Like, it's like, but it, it, it's not for us to say that it was wrong of viewers to, Go around and do it if they wanted to but we definitely chose a path which was like we're generally directing your attention forward we're we're, we're, we're operating on this sort of like ultra imax type experience it's like there's you're just totally immersed in it but we don't really want you kind of looking around all, all the time and i think people that enjoyed it liked that and they bought into it and i think the people that didn't enjoy it fought against it and had friction with it and I mean, they're both legitimate ways to experience it, but we, we definitely tailored it for the, the earlier group who was like, okay, I'll sit down and watch it the way you guys want us to
0: watch it. So that was Luke Van Osh and Steve Miller of Secret Location. I had meant to do my own review of The Great Sea. I'm sad to say that isn't happening. I had access to an Oculus Quest and I already had a subscription to Steam, the online game site where I bought The Great Sea. I thought all of that meant I was probably, I don't know, maybe 90% there to watching it. Nope. You can't just watch VR content purchased via Steam on the Oculus. First, I had to download and install on my laptop an extension to Steam called Steam VR. That was oddly more difficult than it should have been. Then I found out that I had to also download additional software from Oculus and install that on my laptop, a process that was also oddly more difficult than it should have been. But I finally got that done too. Then I was supposed to connect my Oculus to my laptop, but I never successfully did that. The Oculus is all USB-C, but my laptop lacks a USB-C port. Though I should have been able to connect the Oculus to the laptop using a USB-C connector leading to a USB 3 port, but that failed, but that didn't matter because I then discovered that even if I had successfully connected the Oculus to my laptop, my laptop's graphics card wasn't powerful enough for the Oculus VR software anyway. That, by the way, is the short version of my failure to play a VR title. Now, I know a lot of the problems I experienced can probably be attributable to operator error, but the concept of plug-and-play was invented for people like me. And as near as I can tell, plug-and-play wasn't even theoretically possible with what I was trying to do with my Oculus, my laptop, and my Steam account. Luke and Steve said they deliberately chose a linear mode of storytelling for the Great Sea because linear storytelling is likely to endure. That's aside from the VR aspect. I think it will also serve them well for another reason. Because the Great Sea will still seem appealing years from now to folks like me who are going to wait all those years for some truly plug-and-play VR systems before we ever start diving into VR content as deeply as we do with traditional film and television. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history, and we're ready to do that now. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to August 14th, 2012, when the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation announced the winners of the Reinvent the Toilet Challenge. The Gates Foundation has addressed any number of modern challenges. While reinventing toilets is guaranteed to trigger a Beavis and Butthead reflex among some, including me to be honest, the lack of adequate sanitation is a serious problem worldwide. The next clip you hear will be Bill Gates from a video he recorded in 2018, explaining the scope of the problem. Some of the poorest,
3: their toilet may look like this, a pit latrine. The waste here is not processed. It's still gonna get out into the community. They smell terrible. But everybody should have great sanitation, a toilet in their house that is comfortable and doesn't smell awful. Not only does a a toilet make your life comfortable, getting rid of that waste is key to human health. It's unprocessed waste that causes most of the diarrheal diseases. and ends up with lots of kids being malnourished.
0: So in 2011, the Gates Foundation decided to hold a contest to design a toilet that could be used in areas with no sewage systems and possibly no running water at all. The contestants had a year to work on their proposals. The second runner-up was a team from the University of Toronto that designed a system that could sanitize human waste and recover clean water from the process. The first runner-up was Loughborough University in the UK. Their system rendered waste into biological charcoal, minerals, and clean water. What is biological charcoal, you ask. Or perhaps you didn't ask. It doesn't matter because I was wondering. So what happens is that you take biomass, which includes excreta, and you essentially burn it without oxygen. It's a thermal decomposition process called pyrolysis. The result with wood is charcoal. With other biological materials, you get a similar substance commonly referred to as biochar. Biochar can be used to amend acidic soil. The process of creating biochar was known to pre-Columbian peoples in the Amazon basin. Now, nobody's sure if they did it specifically to amend their soil or to make briquettes for their hibachis. The point is, they knew how. So there you have it. If anyone asks you about biochar, you'll know. The team that won first place in the Reinvent the Toilet Challenge was from the California Institute of Technology, which created a solar-powered toilet that generated electricity and separated out hydrogen. As of 2015, the Caltech team had been testing its system in India and in China. They said at the time that the system, based on an electrochemical reactor, can be maintained and fixed with nothing more complicated than a screwdriver. There you go. A toilet challenge and not one deliberate pun. Not one. Okay, that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending August 14th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. The URL is www.eetimes.com podcast, or from our homepage, you can find the radio button. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.